Good morning, everybody. How are we doing? I love this church. You guys are so happy to greet each other. I can barely pull you back to start the message. That's a good sign of a healthy church. Hey, if I haven't met you, my name is Pastor Mike Lotzer. I'm the lead pastor here at Mercy Road, and we are finishing a sermon series today called Failing Forward. Failing Forward. John Maxwell put it this way. He said the difference between people who succeed in life and people who who chronically don't succeed is their attitude towards failure, how they they perceive failure. When you fail, do you look at yourself as a failure? Do you let that completely just ruin the next year of your life? Or when you fail, do you see that as an opportunity for God to grow you? Do you see God as so good and competent that he actually wants to even use your failures to advance his kingdom. That's really what we've been talking about. And just by way of recap, in week one, we talked about the failure of others. We've been looking at the life of Moses. And so Moses is born into this really terrible situation where there is a a genocidal dictator named Pharaoh who wants to kill every baby boy Moses's age and keep the nation of Israel really enslaved and oppressed, and so he has to deal with, as a baby, the failures of other people. Maybe that's your story. You're going through something right now, not because of something you did, but somebody did to you, or something uh, that they did that had a profound impact on you. If so, God can let you fail forward. He can work even in those circumstances. Then we talked about the failure of self-reliance. Moses would grow up in the, in the, and the Pharaoh's palace as a prince, believe it or not, but when he saw the oppression of his people, he took things into his own hands and he committed murder. Some of you have some shame that you've been working through in this series for failures in your past, but Moses really tops anything you've done, really. I mean, he beats a guy to death when he sees injustice, then he buries the body, he has a big cover-up, and yet God uses even this moment to write the next chapter in his story, and he's not done with Moses. It doesn't disqualify Moses from being used powerfully. Then we looked at the failure of self-reliance and entitlement. Entitlement. We live in an entitled generation, don't we? In a culture that's very entitled. And Moses was (laughs) charged with leading people who were very entitled. He felt entitled to better followers, and the followers, you see, felt entitled to a better leader. Maybe that's the failure you're struggling with personally in this series, and that's what, what you would ask God to help you fail forward from that place of entitlement. How about the failure of fear? Moses was asked to confront his fear. What was it? Public speaking. He was terrified of public speaking. Some of you relate. I actually used to relate. Believe it or not, you know, you can't shut me up now, but I, I was afraid of this one at one point, and God shows him how to face that fear and not run from it. The failure of autonomy was one that that hit a lot of us, I think. And we had this picture of Moses actually praying, interceding on the battlefield, and he had his number two and number three guy, Aaron and her, right next to him, holding up his arms in a posture of dependence. And so we asked that uncomfortable question, who do you give armpit access to in your life? Who are you actually inviting in that close to help you hold your arms up when your arms get weak, or are you just going it alone? We looked at the failure, the failure of fearlessness in this series, and just like it's a problem to be afraid and not face your fears, you, it's also problematic to not have an appropriate level of fear or even better yet, reverence 
for God. Moses got kind of familiar with God. He said, hey, show me your full glory. I think I can take it. I think I can handle it. And God in his goodness kind of chuckles and says, it would consume you, Moses. We're friends, but not in the same way that you're friends with, with the guys you play golf with, Moses. Like, I'm the living God, and that has a certain implication of how you relate to me. And so we come to the final failure, and it really is the most serious failure in this man's life. And it's one I hope we all can avoid because it's very difficult, maybe even impossible to fully fail forward out of. What is it? It's the failure of fame. At least that's one way to put it. In one moment, we're going to read and we're going to see this snapshot where in one moment, Moses forgot where the power comes from. He was confused about who was doing the saving and the leading he kind of took God's spot for one moment. Another way theologians have put this is he stole God's glory. He took credit for something that God alone can and should do. And we live in a culture where we are susceptible to this, are we not? I read a 2012 study that looked at 10 to 12-year-old kids, and it somewhere in the 70% range in Canada, came out that they all want more than anything else to be famous. But in the study, they didn't really have much to say about why they wanted to be famous or what that would do for them. They just needed to be famous. And I wonder if 10 to 12-year-olds are an interesting representational case study of our whole culture. I wonder if they're just the right age where they're willing to admit that. Because we live in a day where we all kind of fight with this narcissistic, me-centered, look at me, see me type of culture. So let's look at that. We are going to be in Numbers chapter 20. I'm going to read from the NIV, 1 through 13. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, so they're in a desert, uncomfortable, right? And they stayed at Kadesh. There Miriam died and was buried. Miriam is Aaron's sister, very close to Moses. Now there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. This poor guy, you, you got to feel for Moses. He's leading people that make it very difficult for him. They quarreled with Moses and said, if only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord, why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness? That we and our livestock should die out here. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. So they're complaining, and they're, they're equating for like the millionth time that, that Moses is somehow to blame because he saved them from a life of enslavement in Israel. They're misremembering what Israel was really like, and they're not trusting in God's provision even in the dry time. Some of us relate to that. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. This is good evidence that he failed forward out of that familiarity problem. He's worshiping God with a sense of reverence and dependence, like, God, I don't know what to do with these people. I don't know how to lead them. Only you can provide here. 
People don't last long without water, God. The Lord said to Moses, take the staff and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to the rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. This has uh, happened once before. God miraculously produces water from a rock, which is, which is really kind of incredible. You know, I don't know if you guys have seen a lot of rocks. Typically, water does not come out of rocks when you, when you kick the rock or touch the rock. So it's as if God's saying, here's a little teaching example. I'm going to do something where it's not going to be confusing, Moses, people. It's clearly from me. <laughs> There's no accident. Like, people still have not perfected the technology of pulling water from rocks because it's not in there, okay? So the water is going to come from the rock, and Moses is shaking his head. Okay, I, I remember that. We've done that before. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, and this is where it goes south. Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Now, the Hebrew for, word for rebel is a bad word. It's, it doesn't translate perfectly here into English. Like, if I called my children, listen, you rebels, must I turn this car around on the road trip? You know, like, I don't think they'd be scarred for life. But the, the real Hebrew word for rebels here, it, it's pretty rough. Uh, listen, you rebels, must we bring, we, we bring. Personal pronouns are really important in how we relate to the almighty God, right? Think about that. Moses, who do you mean by we? Do you mean like you and Aaron and God working together in a partnership? Are you using the royal we? What is that we about? Then Moses raised his arm, singular arm, that's important, we'll come back to it, and struck the rock twice with his staff. Interesting. Did God tell him to strike the rock twice? I don't remember that. Water gushed out, and the community and the livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. These were the waters of Meribah, where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord and where he was proved holy among them. This is God's word. Did you catch that last bit where God says, because you did this, you're not going to enter the promised land? Now, now, just feel the weight of that. Moses' whole life has been leading to one end, to bring these people into the promised land. He's been at this for decades. He's been at it so long that the people who were on his staff, on his team, part of the rescue mission in Egypt, they're dying off. Miriam has just died of old age, presumably. Aaron, in the next chapter, will die, and Moses will be kind of the only one left from that early generation. The one thing this guy is looking forward to in his life, the one carrot out there is crossing into the promised land with these whiny and grateful entitled people, but one day we're just going to be there and God says 
You did the thing I asked you to do, but you did it in a way that didn't honor me. In fact, you did it in a way that made it all about you, and you did something so serious that though there is forgiveness, there's going to be a real painful consequence, Moses. You're not going to actually get to do the thing that every fiber of you wants the most. Joshua, a younger leader, will be the guy. Moses enters into a new phase of his life and story that is marked by his greatest failure. Now, that's pretty uh, weighty. When I say greatest failure, we just went over his best hits album, you know, murder and covering stuff up and (laughs) shirking his job responsibilities, you know, being irreverent in the face of a holy God. You know, it's not like this guy hasn't made mistakes in life, and every time God is so gracious and he just seems to almost shelter Moses from the consequences, but with this particular mistake, it's almost like God is like, I can't shelter you from the consequence of this. It would go against my very nature. You can't steal the glory of the living God. Now, you might be asking yourself, and I was the first time I read this text, Was he really stealing the glory of the living God? I don't know about this. The answer, as we'll see from the text, as we look at it a little more closely, is yes, emphatically yes. So if you're taking notes, the the first observation is Moses momentarily wanted the people to fear and trust him instead of God. And that's really seen and very evident in how he executes kind of the order that God tells him. Listen, you rebels, must we do this? And, and you know, I used to think it was all about ang- angry Moses, because he's clearly angry. But for demonstration purposes, here's my staff. It's actually a painter's stick. You know, Moses has this staff, and throughout his life, God says, take your ordinary shepherd's staff. He was a shepherd for many years. And I'm going to do miracles with this. I'm going to work in your ordinary abilities, and all you're going to have to do is stretch out your staff, and the power of the living God will flow through that. And the order wasn't different this time. But how did Moses do it? For the first time in his life, he didn't just stretch out his staff and let the miraculous power of God accomplish the mission. He got theatrical. He's angry, right? He's in a desert. One of his best friends just died. He's grieving. All these people are thirsty. He's thirsty. He's frustrated. He's probably exhausted. He's probably feeling very alone. But in that moment, he fails epically. I used to think it looked something like this. He just like hit the rock twice, kind of with a baseball bat grip. Because, you know, it fits. He's angry. But did you notice in the text that it says he stretched out his hand? Singularly. And so the best commentaries I've read on this suggest that it was much more like this. Look, you rebels, you want water? We're going to get it for you. Check out Mighty Moses. Ta-da! Because if you hit something twice with one hand, You're not baseball batting it out of frustration. I think God would have sheltered him from the consequences if he would have done that. Because Moses was a hothead. He had a temper problem through his whole life, and God seems to really accommodate that and be like, come on, buddy, it's going to be okay. But it's as if the one thing 
that God has no patience or tolerance for is when a human being that has been shown so much grace by God in a very critical moment eclipses God, gets in the way of people's ability to see who really brings water out of rocks. I mean, Moses has to know deep down he's not the water bringer. He doesn't know how to bring water out of rocks. And yet it's happened once before. So what's going on here? It was a momentary lapse of judgment. It was like Moses was just saying, for once I wish these people would fear me a little bit, trust in me long enough to stop complaining and just let me lead. They do kind of feel that way towards God, but but it seems like they just push me around and maybe if I just, for a moment, just a little bit, maybe just convince them that I can bring some firepower too. Maybe I'll get a little respect or whatever. That's kind of how it starts, isn't it? When we get narcissistic and prideful. When we, you know, we have every intention to execute the order that God gave us faithfully to not make it about us. We certainly, in our heart of hearts, don't want people to confuse us with God because we're not God. We're not able to bring water out of rocks. And yet, for different motives, we make the mistake of seeking fame in that wrong moment. Now, is it wrong to be famous to some extent, well-known? I hope not, because Moses is. He was. He was the leader. It's not... That, that being known is wrong, but, but taking the seat of God, that is really the problem. Another way to think about it is, how do we swing the staff in our life faithfully versus famously? One of my mentors, John Golden Gay, at Fuller Seminary, gave me a really cryptic short piece of advice when I left seminary. I, I said, John, what's like the one thing that I need to remember? And he didn't hesitate. He said, Mike, be faithful, not famous. Oh. And I kind of asked for more, and he just repeated it. <laughs> kind of like Yoda, you know? They just don't, they never really elaborate, right? And I thought about that for years. And I think this text, maybe more than any other text, embodies the distinction. We all have a staff in our hand. We all have a, a gift set in life, a vocation that we're called to, missions that God wants us to be a part of. But how we swing that staff, how we extend it outwards, what we do with that staff is very, very critical. Consider for a moment that you as a free-thinking, free-choosing, sentient being, you have to decide you're going to swing the staff that God has put in your hand faithfully or famously? Are you going to make it all about you? Or are you going to make it all about him? And there's ways to kind of dial down into your own heart to think, like, am I making it about me? I guess you could ask yourself a question like, at the end of the day, do I fantasize more about people thinking really highly of me? or people rightly thinking really highly of God. One of the things I always try to ask my own heart is after a sermon, 
God, were you pleased? And I also ask, Mike, were you more excited to get up and tell your story about your really cute kid as a teaching point, or were you more excited to tell people that God is holy and he loves you holy? You know, sometimes I've fallen into a season, and I, I think you can relate, where it's been too much about me. Some of you, that's where you are right now. There's a lot of personal pronouns in your life. It's all about what happens to you. It's all about how many likes you're getting on Facebook, how much traction you're getting on your platform. It's all about coveting and kind of being jealous over a platform that you don't have but you feel like you should have. And I just want to say this in love, but with all seriousness, be careful. God is the most generous being in the universe. He generated it all as a gift, but there are some things that he does not share. He can't, because to share them would be to lie. To share them would be to say what is not true. When you try to steal the very glory of the living God, say that something that is truly from God and only God can do is actually to your credit, is actually one of your skill sets, you're on dangerous ground and there's going to be consequences. And it's not because God wants to punish you or hurt you. It's because God is God and you're not. And if you ever get that confused, that's the worst possible existence that you could have. None of us want to live in a state of not really being in touch with reality. One of the greatest fears that Americans have in a recent study is um, early onset of Alzheimer's, right? Because if you've ever dealt with somebody who struggles with Alzheimer's, a family member, uh, my grandma passed away of Alzheimer's, you start to see an erosion of memory and, and it, it's just like they're not them to some extent. I wonder if there could be a spiritual Alzheimer's that awaits every one of us if we try to take that staff and swing it too famously, if we try to make it all about us, if we try to get the people in our lives to revere and trust and even fear and worship us in a way that human beings are only meant to revere, trust, worship, and fear the living God, I wonder if God allows us to do that even for a little bit without consequences. He might be doing the most cruel thing imaginable. He might be allowing us to succumb to spiritual Alzheimer's, to forget who he is and who we are, to try to merge those together, to try to puff ourselves up and say, I am the one who pulls the water super hard for us, isn't it? Because many of you work in industries that flirt with this type of behavior every day. Like, if you don't get good at getting all the attention on you or getting your platform out there or getting, getting better ads online or whatever, your, your business doesn't work, right? And so you're doing things, markety things and kind of flashy things and attention-getting things because that's how your industry works. And 
I would just say that doesn't mean you need to quit your job. What it does mean is that you need to be careful that doesn't start to seep into this failure of family. So do a little spiritual pulse check for me. As your pastor, it's really important to me that you, you're honest with yourself about this. And it just is, it's important that I'm honest with myself. Have you been tempted recently to say, listen, you rebels, must we, must I make water appear? Ta-da, da-da. If that's something you're struggling with, there are certain sins that the Bible just says, just don't mess with it. Sexual sin is an example. Just flee from that. Don't try to fight and just flee, run away from it. This would be another. Run from that temptation of self-worship, self-fame. Run from that demonic thought that says, maybe you're just as powerful, just as insightful as God. Maybe if you got a little more respect from these people, if they saw you as they see God, you'd be true, be happy. Run from those thoughts and learn how to swing the staff faithfully, not famously. It's kind of a bummer to end on this one, right? Because it's, it's so heavy. It's the one that disqualifies Moses. But before we, we finish up, here, here's just a, a silver liner. God is so loving and gracious that even though he lets Moses experience the consequences of the failure of fame, in other words, he says you can't go into the promised land, he still lets Moses write the whole book of Deuteronomy, which is the most brilliant oration. That happens after this. He still lets Moses leave an incredible legacy. He still uses Moses to lead the people right up to the edge of the promised land. There's still intimacy. At no point from Moses' story from here to, to his death does Moses have a sense that because I screwed up in that way, God doesn't love me. In fact, if you read it, you can tell that Moses says, no, I actually can tell that, Mo that God likes me. He doesn't just love me, he likes me. He worships God, in other words, in a deeper way on the other side of this failure. And consider this fact, when their physical promised land experience is taken from Moses because of his actions, guess what promised land was not taken from Moses? death for Moses was a transition to eternity in the very presence of the living God who he always longed to look face to face with, to be allowed to see his full glory. Moses got that and so will you. Some of us will make failures in life that will cost us from little promised lands that God honestly wanted us to walk into. But we will not be allowed to walk into them because of our own rebellion. But that does not mean for a second that the big promised land, all capitals, will be kept for you. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, died a very painful death, was separated from the Father, so that every one of us who want to enter the promised land will. The place where every tear is wiped away, every regret is wiped away, every sorrow is healed. Do you know that you'll be an eternal being 50,000 years and going at some point in the presence of God in a perfect new heavens and a perfect new 
earth with a perfect restored body. You won't have aches and pains. You won't have regrets. And one thing you won't be doing up there in heaven is like, I really wish I would have swung that staff better. Man, I totally messed up. That would be hell, not heaven, to consider your regrets for the rest of all eternity. Friends, the promised land that awaits the people of God, it's going to heal every failure. It's the ultimate failing forward experience. If you even have a doubt that that's where you're headed, leave that doubt here today. Just open your palms metaphorically and say, God, I don't even know how all this works, but I'm starting to really believe that you did make a way for me to get into the big promised land to be with you. And I want to be with you. I get it. I have failed. I will fail. Help me to fail forward. Forgive me. As we finish this series, I would strongly encourage all of us to be doers of the word and not just hearers, as the author of James, book of James says. What, what do I mean by that? Go through the last few messages. I listed them off at the beginning and say, what in this coming year, in this coming holiday season, do I need to really focus on? Maybe it is that sense of entitlement. Maybe it's fear or fearlessness. Maybe it is this propensity towards lusting for fame that goes so far as to steal God's glory. Maybe it is something else, but it is something. Have an honest conversation with yourself about that. And then have an honest and open prayer to God saying, God, would you help me fail forward with this? We're going to start a new sermon series next week called The Generosity of God. So even if this has felt a bit heavy, and it was kind of a heavy sermon, we're going to go to a really fun place next, next month. And then, as was mentioned in announcements, we are going to have a great Advent series coming up, What I'm Not Doing for Christmas in a World Where We Have to Do So Much. And Christmas, for many people, is just a parade of exhaustion. And you get to Christmas Eve and you just want to, like, cry because you're so tired and broke and overwhelmed and full of food. And we're going to lean into some ancient disciplines of simplicity and doing less but actually having more because of it. It's just going to be a wonderful season. encourage you to continue to, to join us uh, in person at worship. And when you're not able to, I love that our online viewers are growing. We love you guys, too. Now let's pray as we finish failing forward. Gracious God, we've talked so much in this series about all the ways that we miss it and all the ways that you bless us even in our failures. Now would we put it into practice. Thank you that you don't look at any of us and call us a failure. Thank you that you look at all of us and you say that we're forgiven. We're free. Help us to swing the staff that you give us in life with faith, with a trust in you, with a hearty respect and love for you. Thank you that you don't need us to lead your rescue missions. You just want to include us. You just love us. We're grateful to you, Lord. Lastly, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would intercede and ask what we would ask for every person in this room if we had your perfect perspective.
let's stand and, and sing.